Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, we have Jason Michelle, and Jason is an interesting character because he marries two things together that you don't often hear, or at least I don't. He is a Canadian federal prosecutor, but he's also an adventurer. He goes on crazy hikes in Algonquin Park. He's going to about to, or getting ready to climb or do the hike of Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, he does die. He's diving. He's surfing. He's riding on elephants. This guy travels the world doing crazy things. And when you hear a little bit more of his story which will be revealed to you in the first few minutes of this episode, you'll understand why I think at least it's so amazing. So I'm just going to let Jason share a little bit about himself as the episode begins, and you'll understand why his story is just to me really incredible. So we are really blessed to be able to chat and it's us getting to know each other really through this episode. He was introduced to us by another Rockstar Inner Circle member. So thanks, Mark, for connecting us. Had a really great chat with Jason. And that's all I'll say. I'll let the episode speak for itself. And if you are listening to this and you want to hang out with other amazing Canadians, we have something coming up. We call it the Your Life, Your Terms event. We typically do these in person, but we are going to continue doing them and we're doing them virtually right now. We're setting up a bit, I was going to call it mini, but it's a pretty big studio inside the Rockstar training room with multiple cameras. We have a video wall um, that we're going to be putting in there. So we're really trying to make this something special on Saturday, October 17th from 8.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. We have the Rockstar economic update, which is really fun for us to present. We're doing a local real estate market update and all the things that we're seeing in the world right now in the real estate market, everything from the Toronto condo market to everything that's going on around the GTA and the Golden Horseshoe with rents and purchase prices, the whole bit. We are bringing in Kelly Hawks to talk about Bill 184 and how it affects tenants and landlords here in Ontario. We're bringing in Dave Butler for a complete mortgage and financing update. And we are also doing something that we like to talk about, which is the Rockstar mindset and how the mindset that you need to live life on your terms, or at least the mindset we believe that has helped us live life on our terms. We get good feedback sharing this kind of stuff. We are going to share that also at the Your Life, Your Terms event on Saturday, October 17th from 8.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. It is turning into a bit bigger production than we thought. I think we originally thought we were just going to use Zoom and do it. And we are actually using Zoom, but the studio is being set up um, a lot uh, larger than we had anticipated. So we'll see how this goes. I think I'm a little hesitant to, to make sure we can pull this all off, but uh, we'll see how it goes. You can register yourself and grab a seat if you visit www.yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. That's www.yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. If you're already a Rockstar Inner Circle member, you'll be getting emails directly from us, so you can just reply to those and click those links to register. If you're not, you can visit www.yourlifeyourtermsevent.com to grab yourself a seat. And with that, let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and I'm here with Jason. Jason, I'm going to screw up your last name, Mitchell. Michelle. Michelle. Oh, Michelle. Yeah. Wow, so much simpler when you say it. And, <laughs> and, and listen, we got to share your story with everyone so that they kind of understand how much you're up to. I was doing a little research before this call about you, and then Mark Mulder, I think a friend of yours and a friend of mine, connected yeah. us, and he gave me an email about all the things that you are up to, and I can't even keep track, like... You're freaking a certified diver. You're climbing different mountains. Like you're, you're, you're a lawyer. I, I don't even know. And if you don't know, Jason, which many people listening to this probably don't know, are, you're blind. Totally blind. Correct. Yes. And this, to see everything that you're doing, I don't know if it's giving me some guilt of like, holy smokes, I'm just not really doing nearly enough stuff. But uh, can you share just a little bit about your story where you... How, and can we start with like, how do you become a federal prosecutor? Like, how do you go through? And then I'm going to ask you about all these other adventures that you're on. But how does this go from like, you were, were you born without sight? How did, yeah, how did yes. that begin? So, so I have, um, have or, or had, I guess, uh, congenital glaucoma. So I was born with no vision in my right eye and limited vision in the left. And I had over 20 surgeries before I was 10. 
all at sick kids down in, on University Avenue here in Toronto. Um, but having said that, I moved around a lot. My, my, my dad was in the hotel business, so he, so he you know, took different jobs kind of around the country. So we moved around quite a bit. So I was born in Scarborough. We lived in downtown Toronto. We lived in uh, Guelph. We lived in Banff, Lake Louise, Alberta, and settled in Vancouver, where I lived for over 20 years um, and did high school there, undergrad, etc., and then came back to Toronto to do law school. Um, now, in 2004, I lost the bit of vision that I actually had. I lost that due to um, a really bad infection and, and hemorrhaging. So I've been totally blind since uh, July of 2004, which was very early on into my law practice, about the second year in. When you're moving around that much and are... are I don't know why like bullying comes to mind or something going, I think going into different schools is just difficult enough to begin with, but how, how was your experience going to different, different schools? You know what? It wasn't that bad. I mean, um, I wore glasses when I was like really young, like grade one and two, and I got the, the usual, you know, the four eyes and all that stuff, but, um, Okay, good. So I, the normal I, stuff. That's the good. That's the normal I, stuff. Yeah. I, I had an older brother who, um, when I was really young um, in Ontario, went to the same school. Um, and then um, we'd gone to the same high school at different times. So I think having an older brother sort of paved the way and make sure people were looking out for you, I'm sure helped a lot. But I, I'm not saying I never got teased because I think we all do and I'm no exception. But it wasn't as bad as one might think because of the fact that, and I think it's just testament to two things, having an older brother who, was, who had gone through that school before me, but also my, my personality. Um, I'm pretty outgoing and um, I don't let the blindness sort of get in my way. So I think that when people get to know me and my personality, I think that they know that A, teasing is probably not really going to rattle me all that much and B, I don't think they do it because they see I'm doing the same things that they are and have the same hopes and, and goals and dreams. So, you know, I can't say I was ever free of that, but I think it didn't get out of control because of who I am and how I relate to people. Yeah, that's so great to hear. And, and then how, how, does, how do you make the decision to become a lawyer? What, what goes through your mind? Not, not that that's like a, a crazy profession. I mean, to me, it's crazy. Yeah. I, should, I should tell you that all the yes. lawyers in my life, I always say, man, if, if I have to get our lawyers together to have a discussion about something, it's going to be a six-hour discussion because no one's going to be agreeing on anything. Oh, and, and it's all billable too, right? Billable oh, time. yeah. Yeah, it's all, it's all billable. You're petrified. I, I shouldn't say that. We have some great lawyers. We have great lawyers, but I do. There's something about making lawyer jokes. I don't know what it is. Yeah. We're in the real estate industry. So, you know, we're like the bottom of the, the, the yeah. top pole when it comes to making uh, jo jokes. Yeah. Yes. But uh, so I never tire of making lawyer jokes. But what, what is that process like? What made, what made you, what pulled you in that decision? Well, so as you can probably gather, I love to talk. And I love to argue. I love, I love to play devil's advocate. So, you know, early on in, in, in you know, high school, um, I really enjoyed, I, I, I joined the debating club. Um, I, um, I joined the drama club. So things where I, could, where I could talk, where I could perform. I was never much of a jock or that kind of thing. Although I do a lot, a lot of athletic things. I never saw myself as that kind of a person. I saw myself as more of like an intellectual. And so... You know, I joined the debating club, I joined the drama club. I just, I love to talk and I love to argue. And um, I like to watch movies and TV. And some of my favorite, you know, shows were like, you know, dating myself. And, uh, you know, I saw myself as kind of like a bit of a Michael Cusack kind of character. Um, so I just, I really, and I, I took a, a law class in high school and really fell in love with it. It was actually my favorite class. So and it's something that I thought I could do. Um, I, my, I, I kind of wanted to be an actor for a bit and got a few bit parts when I was young. And I thought, what can I do for a living when I can kind of put on a show, but also do it in a way that I can earn a steady paycheck? And I thought, I know, the law. And just kind of fell into it. If you were doing some acting and stuff before, your parents were very supportive. Then your parents would have been helping out with that stuff, right? So you were... I fell into yeah. it. I wasn't anything I was trying to do. I just fell into it and got a few parts that I, that people contacted me about. It literally was a fluke. 
but yeah, my parents were very supportive. Um, my mom, who um, we just went to visit, is living out in BC, and uh, my dad's uh, passed on now. But yeah, they were they were very supportive, and especially when I wanted to go to law school, they were 100. You know, some people said that I couldn't do it because it was too much reading and too much work and what. That's what comes to mind for me. I, that it's immediately what comes to mind for me. I'm like, yeah. how much reading goes into this? Um, a lot, um, but it's all about being organized. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, when I thought about going to law school and high school, people, except my family, tried to steer me away from that because they thought it would be too much for me and I couldn't do it. So I was not always supportive in that goal, but it was something in the back of my mind that I thought I could do with the proper you know, support and the proper motivation. So uh, I did. And, but how I did the reading was uh, I got all the books on tape. And I went in, in the late 90s, so I basically got, um, this was a bit before um, e-books, so I got all the books put onto tape for me, and then by the time I'd finished law school, they were all available electronically. Um, I went to University of Toronto where all of my profs basically wrote the book, so they were able to e, e my, my tenure there. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. And then what is it, a federal, pro I don't even understand what a federal, federal prosecutor is or does what is that role so we do um crimes that are that are uh committed under federal statutes so there's a there's a, there's a division of powers in the constitution whereas the provinces prosecute some offenses the feds others so we do things like our main bread and butter are narcotic related offenses so uh trafficking possession for the purpose of trafficking importing we also do proceeds of crime and we do also um although the province their jurisdiction is more things like murders and assaults and firearms. When guns are mixed with drugs, as they often are, we would often prosecute those cases. Would that include cases that came for the, re I, I was a student customs officer. Okay. And I, I was, uh, one time I had to go to court, but I, I don't know if this would have been a federal thing, but I remember I had to keep my notebook and date it and I had to do record all the this stuff. The customs and excise matter? Yeah. Was, is that a provincial? We would do is, that. That's federal, yes. We would do. Yeah, I don't that, personally do those, but we would do that, yes. Okay, got Immigration, it. Immigration, that's all federal. Yep, so that would fall under our jurisdiction. Got it. Sure. I, I almost, I think I, I really was serving our country one time because when I was a student customs officer there, the, the, the greatest thing happened that somebody was in immigration right. and I guess they ran out of immigration and the immigration officer um, screamed, stop that man. And the, and the guy ran right between my booth, right past me. And I was a student officer there. So like, we really weren't supposed to do these things, but the full-time guys started chasing this guy. And I, and I said, I'm not going to miss my chance. So I started running after this guy down. This would have been the old terminal one at Toronto airport. And I was they, just there last night. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Not, well, the old one, but the, yeah this was the old one. Yeah. Anyway. And we stopped a guy. I didn't really play that major a role, but that's my story of how I helped secure Canada. Just, uh, just so you, you know, did you take him down? <laughs> the other guys did, but I think I might've jumped late just so I said I could have jumped into the mix. But he, <laughs> now why, why was he running? Was he, was he illegal? Did he have something he should have? They, I never even, they kind of gave us bit, bit, bits of information. Um, but another time I was in, I, I was involved with very briefly with CSIS. I think they were trying to stop somebody at the airport and they were showing us like pictures of somebody and they were trying to decide if somebody was going, coming through the airport. And it was the first time I'd ever understood that um, in Canada, we had this organization. I don't even know if we still do called CSIS. We do. So quite often if there's someone that's wanted or the police want to know their whereabouts, they can put a, they can flag them at, at customs so that the customs will call them when they re-enter the country. And they can know at what time they've entered and where and, and what they were declaring. And then so we know when they came back. I don't know if we can I don't know if we can find out when they left, but we definitely find out when they've come back. That I know for sure. I got, got it. Okay. And I want to ask you more a little bit about uh, law stuff, but I just want to ask you some of these other things like you're 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 a certified diver. Like what makes you decide yeah. that you're going to be a certified diver? Like Jason, I'm all for pushing limits. Mm. What, 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 what goes through your brain on this one? Um, because I could. Um, no, so, so through the CNIB, of which I'm, I'm on the board, I get a lot of notices for things. I guess when people want to get blind people involved, they contact CNIB to, to put things out to their, to their contacts, to their network. And I got an email uh, about a year and a half ago saying that this group in Etobicoke wanted to try – to take blind people diving, that they'd had certifications in uh, 
specialized diving and they want to try it. So they set up a, a free session just to do a, a slight pool session to see if somebody would want, would want to actually go and get certified. And a group of us went, now the whole group, I think I was the only one that actually went through with it. That only, I guess I'm maybe the one that, uh, you know, I, 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 I act first before I jump before I, before I think. <laughs> But so I said, sure, let's do it. And then they arranged to have me come in for a few days. And they did, we did some pool training and went to, went to a lake um, out by Hamilton. And I got my certification. Um, th th there was a casualty, though. I, I actually, um, I guess I went down a bit too fast, didn't equalize properly, and wound up getting a, uh, basically a, um, uh, an injury with my, uh, a ruptured eardrum, which for a blind guy is not a great injury to have. <laughs> No, you so, are, you so are completely crazy. I shouldn't yeah. laugh. I should not laugh hearing you no. say, I'm just saying, holy smokes, man, what are you putting yourself through? But, uh, and that, that's so about a month, it was like I had a cotton ball in my ear for about a month. Yeah. Got and it. eventually, thank, thank goodness, cleared up. But it was a bit of a scare. Um, so I haven't been since because of that injury sort of maybe, you know, I'm not saying I would never do it again, but I'm in no rush to go back given that injury. It was a bit of a scary situation, but, I, but I'm glad I did it in hindsight. Yeah, totally. And, and I, hear, I hear those are completely painful. So uh, They're very, I, they're very it, painful, and, and there's, there's no absolute guarantee you're going to get your full hearing back. It usually is the case. It comes back on its own. It did for me, thank, thank goodness, but I, it's, it's a risk. You know, for, for a blind person, that's an injury. You don't want any, you don't want any permanent hearing Yeah, you don't want to mess with damage, For yeah. sure. You don't want to mess with that. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I sometimes get uh, some ringing in my ears and everyone gives me different reasons for why I get the ringing in my ears, but that alone yeah. is just enough to, to bug me. But okay. I want, I want to go on here. You're, you're in it, with Mark. It sounds like you went to Algonquin park and then he tell, he tells me in this email here that you went to Algonquin park on the back country canoe trip together. Um, yeah. you're doing portaging through the backwoods yeah. and then, and then he says, he was a mess. Mark's a pretty fit guy. He was a mess at the end of this trip and exhausted. Wow. said on the last day, though, you announce that you're going to go to Lake Rosso for a week to volunteer at a camp. So um, I get, yeah. how does this, so first of all, your backcountry canoe trips, that's just a thing you regularly do? No, actually, we, we'd like to do it. We did it last summer. Um, we were trying to make it an annual event, but I guess the summer due to, you know, COVID and everything, but it didn't happen. But um, yeah, we, we went a bunch of us, including Mark. Now, Mark did all the heavy lifting, so he's kind of being a bit modest there. Um, <laughs> when, when we were doing the portaging, he was the one doing all the heavy lifting, but so he would have been a bit more spent than me. But uh, yeah, we did, um, we did, I guess, a three-day canoe trip. Um, I forgot the name, but we didn't, we didn't through the Pembroke side. Um, and, uh, I can't, I can't help you with it. I'm a Canadian who's never been to Algonquin yeah. park, if you could believe it. Oh, so it I was know nothing about it. Yeah. We went in like July of, um, and so we, we portaged and we canoed and we camped and there was a group of us, uh, a couple of guys and a couple of them brought the couple brought their kids. Um, but, but Mark did most of the heavy lifting, so far, far, far more than me. Um, but it was fun. And the next day, I wound up going to a camp run by the CNIB up at Lake Joe. And I, I, was, I was an instructor at a camp called Camp Abilities. And we basically taught uh, blind kids how to sail. So we did, we did sailing up in uh, Lake Joe. And the last day, we did a, like a race, like a regatta with the kids. No way. And so one, one of the guys brought these, these, what they're called sound buoys that make these, like they basically make these really annoying, loud ringing and beeping sounds. And so you follow the sound if you can't see, and you have to go around the sound buoys to get to the finish line. So that's like an obstacle course. But you know you're there because they make these really annoying, loud ringing noises, so you can't miss them. People probably think there was like a there was like a bomb coming in or something, but uh, <laughs> that, that's how blind people sail. They follow the sound buoys. That's how they race. Got it. So if the sound buoys are set up properly, you're going to you're you're going towards the buoy, I guess. Is you have that to go the... towards it and then go around it, to, to, and then you have to go out one way, around all the way around the sound buoy, and back again to finish the race. That's how you do it. Yeah. So and cool. they're loud. You can't miss them. I mean, they're like I'm sure the neighbors wondering what what was going on. Right? It's crazy. So uh, the funding for a camp like that, does, does the government help fund th that? Is that all kind of self-raised money? How does so, that work? So CNIB runs Lake Joe, which I'm on the board, through their own fundraising. Lake Joe does their own fundraising, and CNIB 
I think gives them some, some funds as well. The camp that I was doing were our own thing. CNIB does provide the location and I think maybe some partial funding, but we, we generally fund it ourselves. Um, so uh, there, now, unfortunately, there were no camps this summer due to you know, the state of the world, but I'm hoping sure. there, were, there were virtual camps, but no in-person camps. So we're hoping that next summer we'll be able to do it again. And actually, as part of um, our Kilimanjaro fund, we want part of those funds to go to Campabilities. They're a group that started in the U.S., that have come to Canada that believe in, they do one-on-one -on -one coaching for blind athletes. So we'll do what they want. We'll do tandem biking, we'll do running, we'll do track and field, or we'll do sailing. It's very intensive one-on-one -on -one training where the person maybe hasn't, didn't know how to, to run before because they couldn't see how to run. We'll teach them how to run properly. We'll teach them how to do, wow. how to bike. We'll teach them how to sail, et cetera. So it's quite empowering. The fear you must have to overcome to just, I'm just thinking about that. If you've never really run before and I can understand the fear, obviously. If you've never seen anybody run, you wouldn't know how to do it. No. Yeah. You're, you're so right. And, and just the, 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 your own fears that you have to overcome to do something like that, that I wouldn't have thought about. That is a huge barrier to overcome. And then just like to get in the water and do things like sailing. Um, so yeah, it, it's so cool that you're doing this stuff and helping people. And I guess the feeling of accomplishment through that's just incredible. Uh, well, you know, I, I really, when I went to summer camp, I worked at summer camp for four summers in BC with CNIB, and it was a life-changing experience for me. It was my first job. It was my first time sort of being away from home for long periods of time. My first time spending large amounts of time with other blind folks. So it really helped me to grow as a person. I think it can help other people if I'm on the, the giving end of that as well as the receiving end. Yeah, but and I want to talk to you about um, Kilimanjaro in a second, but I want to flip back sure. to, to this. What is, what is, it's, I, I have something noted here that you are the recipient of the Action Canada Building Leadership for Canada's Future. What is that? What, what was that about? Because oh. I feel like you have a lot, I think you have a lot of accomplishments here. So you might not even oh. remember some of these accomplishments. Because when that I look was, in That was a while ago. That was in 2006. So what happened was, um, so a colleague of mine at the Department of Justice had received this award and told me about it. And how, how I knew about it is someone said, what are you doing in that photo with John Cretchen? And that's back when John Cretchen was prime minister. And he's like, oh, that was part of my Action Canada Fellowship. And I went, what? Tell me about it. And the rest is history. So what, what that was, was it was, a, it was a fellowship. It still exists today, by the way. It's changed somewhat, but it's still, in its essence, still there. Um, so what it was, it was started by... Um, Sam Bellsberg, who was a phil phil philanthropic uh, billionaire from BC, and Jack Blaney, who was the president of Sam Fraser University at the time in, in BC. And they, they had a pool of money and they partnered with the Canadian government and they wanted to basically fund a, an internship fellowship program to help build future leaders in Canada. And of course I got this award when I was much younger, when I was considered a youth. Um, at the time, or youthish, and so what it was was it it was um, a fellowship where you basically had to um, do a project on a public policy area important to Canada and Canada's national interest. And at the time, um, when you got this fellowship, they get, basically gave you a twenty thousand dollars stipend just to do it. And then you traveled all over Canada and you met with various you know, leaders in, in government and business. So my year, we went to Vancouver for a week and, and our year was entrepreneurship. So we met with small and large business leaders in, in Vancouver. Uh, we came to Toronto, Ottawa and met with, um, for example, we got a tour, for example, of, of Magna and CarMax here in the GTA. We went to Parliament Hill and met with a bunch of committees there. And then we, we ended the year off in Alberta. I went to Calgary and saw what was happening in the economy there. Took a flight up to uh, Fort McMurray and saw the oil fields and stayed up there for a couple of days. Got a helicopter tour of like the oil fields at Suncor. Um, uh, we uh, had lunch uh, with Preston Manning at one point. Um, we got a, a private audience with, um, with um, Belinda Stronick back when she was an MP back at the time. And so it was really um, a fulfilling it was, it was a whole year and it would take certain weeks throughout the year. And, and then because it was a federally sponsored program, my employer gave me the time off to do it. See, and, and then so we, we had a certain policy groups. My group, uh, we did a, a presentation on, on clean tech 
keep in mind this is 2006, 2007. So at the time, clean tech was a early, yeah. yeah, very early on, right? So it was a new thing and it was very burgeoning at the time. So, so we, um, yeah, so I think, I think there were 20 fellows that got accepted that year. And, um, you know, you had to apply, you had to have references, you had to write an essay to even, to even to apply. And it was a very rigorous application process. And I was, uh, I guess I knew someone or something. So I was able to, um, to, to get in and I, I've made some, some lifelong friends from our cohort and I, I'm an alumnus now and I'm very involved with the alumni group. And we did a, a reunion actually in, back in 2019 in Ottawa. And, and there have been many uh, uh, virtual reunions this year uh, over Zoom. And so it's a very strong group of cohorts that date back to you know the early 2000s, and and the project has taken on uh, some some new uh, some new things, and 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 it's shifted somewhat, and there's new sponsors involved, and some new rules. But essentially, it's it's uh, if you look at the if, at the list of of the past fellows, it's kind of a who's who of Canadian government and business. So just to be even in that group is quite prestigious. Well, well yeah. actually, one of the, one of the advisors my year. If every small group would have a couple of advisors, one of them was a fellow named Malcolm Rowe, who at the time was a judge in Newfoundland, who was now on the Supreme Court of Canada. So, just to give you a sense of who's involved, there was it was really like a kind of a who's who of, of Canadian sort of business and government. You have such a you have such a unique perspective of this country, very different than my perspective of this country, just from everything that you do and that you've been a part of. And I'm a I'm a real proud Canadian, and I and I love, you know, I love what this what this yeah. country has offered my parents sure. and, and and my life. From your point of view, maybe coming from the legal perspective, are there some things that you would just tell other people from other places why Canada is so great? Like around, and I'm specifically asking around, around our legal system, or if you want to take a different angle, is there something that bothers you about the legal system that you wish in this country we would change? So what I like the most about our legal system is something I deal with every day, which is a charter of rights and freedoms, which is an enshrined doctrine that was initially um, enshrined or, 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 or introduced and passed back in 1982 with uh, Trudeau Sr. And it basically enshrines our rights as Canadians, our right to be free of illegal search and seizure from the police, our right to be free of, of illegal detention, our right to be to a speedy trial, our right to uh, be treated equal under the law. All these really important basic human rights that many countries either don't have or don't have a legal system that will enforce them. We do. And that's what separates, I think, Canada from many other places in the world, is that we have this group, this, this, this bill of rights, if you will, this charter of enshrined rights that, you know, protect us from the tyranny of the state, protect the minority from the will of the majority. And I deal with that every day as a, as a federal prosecutor, because my, many of our drug cases deal with search and seizure issues and, and detention and arrest and, and right to fair trial issues that... Uh, that are so important to to our, our fundamental rights and freedoms and what, what makes us unique as Canadians. I think what, what bugs me the most about our legal system is the fact that we have these huge backlogs, you know, and COVID's obviously not helping that, but uh, we have a lot of, of cases that are being thrown out or being stayed by the courts because they're taking too long to get to courts. So we need, we need more resources. We need more judges, more prosecutors. We need more court staff. Uh, we need the system has to be better resourced for it to, 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 to move more, more efficiently. And why are, why are we not getting that? Well, I think it's tough now with COVID, you know, all, all our resources are basically going into that, but even before COVID, I think it was a resource issue. And I think the government is working to try and fill the backlog, but I think it in past and baby in past years, it wasn't a priority with past governments as much as it should have been and, and backlogs formed. I think our current government does, is doing their best to try and fill that backlog, but it's going to take time and it takes resources. And unfortunately, COVID is an unexpected, you know, bump in the road that may, you know, make things even more backlogged for a while. But that is, as a prosecutor, my frustration is that we're not getting cases to court as quickly as, 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 as I'd like to. Or as so, so if we eliminate COVID as a variable just in our discussion, can technology help at all with this or no? We need well, everybody it, to group together in a courthouse. No. To, to, so here's the one. Here's the one good thing of COVID. If 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 you could pull any positives out of this negative, is that the justice system to basically modernize within six months. 
um, you know, six, seven months ago, doing a, a hearing via Zoom or a virtual hearing would have been unthinkable or unheard of. Now it's actually quite routine. So, uh, and I'm doing some of them as, you know, as we speak. So I think the legal system before was very paper latent, very archaic. You know, everything was basically on paper. Everything had required an in-person court appearance, um, which slowed things down. You know, documents got lost, they went missing, yada, yada. So it was in dire needs of, of, a, of a modernization, of a technological boost. And I think this would have taken years to happen, if not being forced to happen due to COVID, because the courts actually shut down for a couple of months to try and figure all these things out. And now we actually do have a situation where we can have completely virtual hearings where I can, you know, sit in my living room and I can, I can examine a witness who's in their living room or I can make arguments to the court or I can email in my cases or my written submissions and everything. And the judge can be at home. We can all be at home. We can be socially distanced. So I think that that has been a very positive thing to get the legal system to actually be, to be running more smoothly and more efficiently. Whereas if, even if someone's out of town and can't attend court, they can do a Zoom hearing. So I think it's actually going to, in the long run, help a lot more than, so I think that's the positive of the pandemic is it's forced the courts to basically embrace technology, which they have been doing to their credit. For those of us that are outside of the legal system and we don't know much other than, our inter you know, most of my interactions with lawyers are around real estate transactions and that kind of thing. What, sure. would, you, what would you ask of Canadians in 2020 to understand about Canada's legal system? You know, do you think there's a misconception of our legal system at all? Do you think the public understands how good or how much it needs to be improved? Is there, is there something that you would, anyone listening to this? Because I'm just thinking for myself, like yeah. I don't know too much about the federal, proce uh, federal prosecutor until today hearing a bit of what you've shared. I don't know too much of that world. What, what should we know or what would you ask of Canadians to understand about your world? I think that I would ask Canadians to be patient, that um, you may hear about an arrest on TV and then wonder what happened and think that maybe nothing's happening. And the reality is it may take a while to get that case to court. It's not, you know, you hear about something in the media, there was, there was a big takedown yesterday when there was all these arrests and all these, you know, kilos of drugs and guns and cash seized, and you, you hear nothing for a while. And you may think there's nothing happening, and that's not true. It's just, it takes a while to work its way through the system. We have to, you know, we have to, disclosure has to be released. We have to have um, judicial pretrials. We have to, you know, decide the issues. We have to have hearings and pretrial motions. So, you know, it may take years to get to a resolution. It doesn't mean, though, that in that meantime, nothing's happening. So I would ask Canadians to be patient with us. Okay, and the process has to be the way it is to, to provide the fairness of the system, correct? Is that, that's, that's why that's, things... Yeah, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, you know, we're balancing the, the right of the state to actually keep everyone safe and, and free from harm with the rights of the accused to have a fair trial and to defend themselves. And so that, that process does take time. As I did say before, there are some backlogs. So it may take a few years to work straight through the system. That doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means, uh, you know, justice, although we'd like it to be speedier than it is, it does take time. And uh, so just because you hear nothing in the media about a case, doesn't necessarily mean nothing's going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Jason, to do as much as you do, um, how do you keep yourself organized? Do you have like a daily or weekly kind of plan? Because I just imagine your life, just hearing you kind of volunteering at different camps and getting certified on these things. We're going to talk about Kilimanjaro in a second. But do you just have a, a system for yourself? When you're in the middle of a big trial of some sort, I'd imagine there's just a lot of moving pieces. Do you have a morning yeah. routine or a weekly routine just to keep um, yourself organized? I wished, yeah. um, you know, uh, or, or organized chaos, I guess. Um, you know, I have certain people in my life that do keep me sane and organized. I, I have, I have a, I have a, I have a partner that keeps me on track. I have uh, work colleagues that uh, I work with on a routine basis that, uh, you know, help me with, you know, my schedule and my, you know, I have an assistant at work who does all my scheduling for me and always reminds me of what's coming up, whether I know it or not. Almost daily or certainly every couple of days emails, you know, a reminder, you've got a call coming up this day or you've got a JPT this day or you're meeting with so-and-so this day. So you know, I do have, you know, between my personal life and, um, and my professional life, I do have very strong allies. Uh, but, you know, it's, it does, it's, it's a lot. I do have to kind of, a lot of that just keep 
upstairs, you know, I, I, I should use the Google calendar more than I do, but between my work colleagues and, 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 and my partner at home and, 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 and various uh, friends along the way, I'm able to make it work and, and just sheer luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're you're clearly making your luck. You're making your luck. Okay. So um, wh- what's going on with this, this climb that you're organizing? Can you talk a, bit, a bit about this? I can. So uh, I'm, I'm going to be joined by seven other uh, blind athletes and our guides. And we're planning on climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Now it was supposed to have already happened by now. It was supposed to have happened actually at the beginning of September. That's we had booked to go in September, obviously pre-pandemic. So, you know, COVID sort of threw things off somewhat, as it's done for most people in the world. But uh, we're hoping to go in September of 2021. But we're probably going to wait to go until the pandemic stage basically under control or over, given that uh, you know the issues uh, that we'd be facing in traveling. But uh, we're so, but. The, essentially, the idea is that we're, we're going um, and we're doing it for a few reasons, to, cl- to, to, to create awareness for the abilities of blind people and to basically try and inspire others to climb their individual mountain, whatever that may be in life. So um, we are basically um, trying to also raise some funds for capabilities, as I mentioned to you earlier, and help to defray the costs of the going to do the climb. And just basically try and inspire people and let them know that whatever their mountain is, it can be overcome. What, what, are, the, what are the details of this? How long is the climb going to take? Is it gonna, what are the chunks that it's broken it's, up? It's into? eight days. It's called the Lamosho route. It's eight days, six days up, two days down. And, yeah. um, and you were telling me before we were chatting, I forget the height of it. Was it 30,000 feet? 20,000 feet. 20,000 feet climbing. The reason I, I knew it was high was because I think I, when, I, when I jumped out of an airplane, I think I was 10,000 feet in Dundee. Oh, yeah, 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 so this is like double. This is double that. So it takes you that many days up and only two days back down. Wow, that's incredible. Got it. And, uh, and the training for this? Are, what, what kind of training is involved? Well, the training, you? you know, I've been doing various tra- – I've had a personal trainer for several years that we've been doing various – you know, uh, obviously cardio and interval training. Um, part of it, though, is getting used to the altitude, which is really hard to train for. So to do that, I actually went uh, in Jan- anticipating I was going to be going this September. I went to Ecuador in January, I went to Quito, Ecuador. And I climbed a good chunk of um, Cotopaxi, which is a big volcano uh, just outside of Quito. And it's, I made it to, I didn't do the whole climb. Part of it was a bus. Part of it was a climb, but I want, it was more to do the altitude than the actual climb, but I made it up to, uh, 18,000 feet to the glacier. And, um, I was fine because some people, it's hard to know whether or not it's going to bother you until you're actually there. So I know I'm good at 18,000 feet. Next to two shouldn't be a big problem. So I've done the, the altitude training, uh, so I've done, we've done some things as a team to get ready. We've done, um, we've done, uh, climbing in the gym and the climbing gym. We've done a couple of runs. I've done, uh, things like, uh, the ride to conquer cancer uh, on my tandem bike, just anything we can do to kind of keep fit and raise awareness. We've been trying to do. Where, and then how can you, we're going to ask this again in a second, but the URL to support you or to get more information on this, if anyone is listening to this that wants to offer some kind of support, sure. you, what's the website for that? www.teamlimitless.ca. Yeah. Team Limitless. Yeah. Very cool. You can uh, donate on the website. You can read more about the team. You can read more about me. Um, you can read more about uh, uh, some of our past fundraising, fundraising initiatives. There's a photo gallery on there, et cetera. Jason, you know, in, in, in my life, there's been probably five or six moments in my life that have been really pivotal moments where I've made a decision that have really changed the, the direction of my life. When you reflect back on your life, what are some, you know, is there a couple big things, big, big moments that you, where you made a decision, whether it was to get into law or I, I don't know, that really kind of maybe were perceived as risky by other people, but not by you, that you really are proud that you went ahead and did? Um, I, I'd say there, that there were several key turning points, TSN turning points, if you will. Yeah, yeah, exa- perfect, exactly. Uh, yes. <laughs> one was one was very young. Um, so when I when I when I first started a college, I was in Vancouver and I started community college and I did a, was doing a university transfer program, but I started at the college. 
And I was pretty directionless. You know, I was taking all the courses you'd think you'd, you'd have to take, you know, Psych 101 and sociology. And I just, I was, a, I didn't know what I, I knew I wanted to be in school. I didn't really know what else to do. So for lack of options, I just went to school and took some general courses kind of, again, I hadn't decided on law school yet and I was pretty directionless. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then out of a fluke, I used to go to this English class um, that I really loved. We read a couple of really good novels and, and the English prof and I became pretty tight. We'd go for beers once in a while. He was a very interesting guy. But, but every, every I have a, I'm notorious for not being very good with my time management skills. So I was pretty much late for every class that, 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 that you know, I'd, I'd, I'd saunter in with my guide dog, you know, maybe like 10 minutes late or something <laughs> like this. And so one of the few times I was actually on time, what he would do sometimes is he would actually, he would read out certain announcements that were on the bulletin board in the hallway, just for, I guess, to make sure if people had noticed them. And then one of the few times I was actually on time, he read a notice about uh, a field study being, being run through the college and another college in Kelowna to go and study sociology and history in Central Europe. And it was, this was probably in the winter of 1991 and it was gonna be done, happening in the fall of 92. I'm, I'm sort of dating myself a little bit here, but anyway. <laughs> so I thought this is really interesting. So I actually applied to go on that trip to go and it was three and a half months in Central Europe. And uh, you know, you, you basically would, you, you, you would do bus tours and there was a group of students and you would stay in pensions and little hotels. And, and I was, at the time I was 20. I'd never really been anywhere on my own with any, you know, I basically, if I was traveling, I always traveled with my family. I wasn't, I didn't travel on my own. And so I applied and actually got accepted to go on the trip and went to, and we went for over three months and we visited five different countries in Central Europe. It would actually be, visiting the places that we reported about. So for example, I did a, I did a report on, on Auschwitz and the Holocaust, that I presented my, my report standing at Auschwitz, for example. Wow. Or I did a report on the defenestration of Prague where a bunch of ministers were tossed out of, the, of a castle in Prague during the, during the 30 years war. I did that report from the window the ministers were tossed out of, for example. You know, someone did a report on the Nuremberg trials from Nuremberg. So, and when I did this program, it really opened up a lot of avenues for me. I had an epiphany because I really learned that I enjoyed studying history and learning about other countries. And I was told about a program called International Relations, which is being offered as an undergrad at UBC. Highly specialized, you had to have, you know, a certain, you had to have a language or some certain prereqs, like another language and economics and history. But it was, it was a very specialized program. Only 50 people a year got in. But people who were doing this, these, this program were going to work for the UN and going to work all over the world in Geneva and New York and going on to careers in law, like really high-end international type jobs. So I decided that that was going to be my calling. So I went back to college when I came back uh, in early 93, I guess and took two more years essentially to get all the prereqs I needed at, at college, like the economics, the history, the language, and wound up transferring to UBC in 1995 and got into the program, got into international relations. And uh, from there we would do things like travel around North America and do model United Nations where you got to actually like portray the country in the UN General Assembly and uh, almost like being a lawyer. You know, you get to debate with other countries on like an international stage as if, as if you're at the UN. So, um, and then from there, I, I, uh, I applied to do a, an internship at University of California at Berkeley. And I, I got into to, to do that. So I spent a year at UC Berkeley. So I think the combination of the Europe trip and going spending a year at UC Berkeley is what springboarded me into going to law school. So those were a couple points that sort of changed uh, my thinking um, and, and, and were really inspirational to, to me. And then um, I guess the next sort of major point in, in my life was uh, 
when I when I went to law school was basic. Oh, I guess the other one too that also was a springboard was I, I spent some time in South Africa in the late nineties, doing a couple of internships in Cape Town, uh, sponsored to the Canadian government. I worked one year for an environmental lawyer on environmental law and policy, and another year on disability rights and policy with the new constitution in South Africa. That was really eye opening. I think was also. Uh, a great springboard for my career in law. So those were also pivotal points for me. And then um, I would say the next big, big pivotal point was uh, in my career. Um, when I started law school, my first term of first year at U of T, I went to a job fair. And what I would do as a, as a law student is I would have my own personal business cards printed up with my name. And then I was a, a, a law student and my you know email and phone number, whatever. And I'd give them out to people at these job fairs. And the first term of first year, I, I, I found myself at the uh, table of the Department of Justice. And I met two people there who I really hit it off with and we exchanged business cards. And I wound up getting hired, we kept in touch and I wound up getting hired on there as a first year summer student. And that led to my articling job and led to my job that I've had now for about 17 years. So another pivotal, pivotal point in my life. Um, you know, hearing you go through this, it's just amazing that you just kept showing up at places. Like you just, you saw an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. You just kept, show, yeah. And, 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 and it, your story kind of just kept evolving. But I think so many people would listen to that story and think, this guy's traveled to more places than I could possibly imagine on internships. But you just, you just yeah. have no fear. I don't know if you've been like this through your whole life, but you just kept applying for things and doing things where I think most people, they figure out the reasons why they shouldn't do something. And I'm not trying to say that you are fearless by any means, but you clearly have the ability to just look past some fears and say, I'm going to try this. I don't care what anybody says. So good for you. It's cool. And, it's, it's, and, and I guess the most recent sort of epiphany in my life is that I, you know, I, I've been through a few changes in the last couple of years on a personal level. But I have met um, an amazing woman who is currently my partner. I've met her uh, just over a year ago, and we're together now. And uh, that's been another another life changing experience uh, for me. And uh, I'm looking forward to building a life with her. So, uh, you know, every couple of years, something big happens. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Hey, so uh, Jason, I know I've already taken a lot of your time here, so we're, we're going to wrap it up. But w w anyone listening to this, if they are facing something that they feel in their life is some sort of obstacle, and w what kind of advice would you give them? And I know you don't have all the answers for everything, and I'm not trying to say that you do, but you've done a lot of stuff. If, if someone is stuck, whether it's a job, I don't know, relate, or do they want to do something new athletically, try go to the gym for the first time, mm -hmm. if someone's thinking about something, what would your advice be to them if they mentally are blocking themselves? I think it's all about setting goals for yourself. It's to me, a big thing for me is, is goal setting. Um, I don't want to toot my own horn, but if I, if I, if in life I want something, I've wanted something bad enough, I've pretty much gotten it. Um, and it's not that I'm that great or anything. It's just, I think that it's about setting goals that are achievable goals. Um, you know, you set low goals, you'll achieve low goals. You set goals that are maybe too high, you might get disappointed. So I think you have to set the bar to the point where they're achievable, but high enough that you have to strive for them. Um, and, and the higher goals you set, though, and when you actually achieve them, then the better off you feel about yourself. So I think it's all about goal setting. Um, you know, if you want a certain job, think about how you're going to, what you can do to get that job. If you want a certain something in life that you really want to try and do think about what you'd have to do to get that how long would it take how am I going to get there what needs to happen before I can do that um, so a lot of it is about goal setting and about being open to trying new things and new challenges you know don't don't close yourself off to think don't think you can't do something uh, just because you think it's too daunting of a task think of ways you could do it maybe seek out other people who have done that thing you want to do and see how they've done it you know find new allies build your network and I think from there, if you really want to do it, you'll find a way. 
Hey, Jason, for, for Team Limitless, other than financial ways to support you, are there any other requests that you would make? Are there any, I don't know, equipment? I know we talked about a personal trainer who might be on the west side of Toronto you guys could pro- probably yeah. use. Any other, other than, than straight money, any other types we of requests? We're open to online donations. We do need apparel for the trip, climb, you know, uh, proper climbing gear like boots and uh, proper clothes. And uh, uh, like, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's, it's a hike. It's nothing, you don't need like, you know, uh, picks or anything like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, not, you're not climbing up the side of a glacier on this yeah yeah higher you know you need to be you know fully attired and, and we had we had applied to various uh clothing apparel fitters for that but unfortunately when we applied it was right before the pandemic so you know due to obvious reasons that hasn't panned out yet for us but you know we need apparel um we need perhaps some personal trainers to be involved um I personally haven't been able to see my personal trainer uh, since March. So, uh, and I've, and I've moved to, to a different part of Toronto since then. So, uh, you you're know, on the, you're on the West side of the city. We're, right we're now, right? Etobicoke. Yeah. So I think that uh, anyone that could donate any, any time, uh, personal training sessions, uh, I do own my own tandem bike. I'd love to go and, uh, you know, take out the bike or have someone, you know, go to a gym with me or, or whatever, you know, personal training sessions would certainly be welcome for me or, or other parts of our team for that matter. Uh, that, that may, that may, that may come. In. And is the best way to contact you, Tim, uh, for, for all of that, it's all on teamlimitless.ca, correct? Yes, that would be, uh, that would be the, the, way, the way to do it. There's a, there's a contact feature on, on the website. Um, they, they can certainly do that. Or, or if anyone knows you, they could contact me through of- yourself. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. If you reach out to the rockstar office, we'll make sure Jason gets anything. Sure. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And Jason, so just, just to wrap here, I just really want to thank you. Listen, as, as, as a Canadian who, uh, I don't, uh, you know, know a lot of the, the, the world that you work in every day. It's really comforting knowing that there's someone like you doing what you do um, legally as a federal prosecutor and kind of representing all of us the way you do. So mm-hmm. you're an inspiring story from start to finish, <laughs> no doubt. But just on what you're doing on a day-to-day, just getting to know you a little bit better today. And, and uh, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of all of us. So well, thanks for the opportunity. I want to I want to thank Mark for setting this up, of course. And let's uh, not thank Mark. Let's not thank. Mark. I'm joking. I'm joking. Of course. Uh, <laughs> no, I've, I've known Mark for uh, for many years. So yeah, how do you guys know? How do you guys? How do you know Mark? Friends? Well, Mark? actually, through another blind friend, um, okay. a good buddy of mine uh, who now um, works for um, LinkedIn in California. I used to live here in Toronto, and he and Mark were colleagues back when Mark used to work for, for, for a big bank back before his teaching years. Got it. And so I met through, sort of through them and then Mark wound up going biking with another one of my good friends from law school, just ironically. And so there's a couple of different avenues where how I know Mark from. So it's uh, very yeah, cool. Small, small oh, great guy. Yeah. And I have to thank him. for yeah, yeah. In touch. So yeah, if you are listening to this, you can reach out to us at Rockstar and we'll share anything um, with Jason and make sure he gets that. Or you can go to teamlimitless.ca and uh yes jason um yeah just thank you so much really appreciate the chat thanks for the time i know you're busy so thank you yeah thanks jason thanks so much okay cheers see ya bye hey everyone it's tom crads again so hopefully you enjoyed that episode we're really having a thrill doing this and getting to meet different canadians so that was also a thrill for us to chat and get to know jason better um and if you are listening to this and you want to check out what we're doing with real estate investors in the Ontario area. We have our big event coming up on Saturday, October 17th. You can check out all the details details, and grab yourself a seat at www.yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. That's www.yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. That's it for now. Until next time, your life, your terms.